As we continue our study through the book of Acts, we are but two chapters away from completing the book of Acts, and then we're going to study Luke's earlier writing, the Gospel of Luke, once we finish the book of Acts, which I'm excited for to get back on focus of the person of Jesus and the works that he did while he was here during his life, death, and resurrection. We've been studying Paul, Paul who wrote so much of the New Testament, formerly Saul, who was a man who hated Christians. He was a man who would actually bring Christians before Jewish elders so that they could be persecuted, tortured, beaten, and killed. But God got a hold of his life. His conversion story of his road to Damascus, he's going to talk about today in our text. So I don't want to go too in-depth on it, but if we remember how Paul was taken, a man who was a Pharisee of Pharisees, and then because of his culture of being a Roman citizen, a Jewish-born man, induced in Greek culture, he was able to minister to so many different people. And the Lord called him to go preach to the Jews in Jerusalem, knowing very well and telling Paul that when he went, he would go in chains. And that as he would be persecuted and beaten, it'd be for the glory of God. And his friends were like, don't, don't go. Don't go to Jerusalem. And he said, I, I have to. Because the love of, of Christ compelled him to go preach the gospel to his brethren. And he went. He went and he began to preach to his Jewish brethren who he thought he could minister to the best because they're his brothers. He knows them. And they got so angry when he said that salvation was for the Gentiles that a riot broke out. And then the Romans saw this riot breaking out. So they grabbed Paul. They seized him. And they took him into questioning and were saying, wait, why are all these guys coming against you? What did you do wrong? And back and forth, he would tell them, I I've done nothing wrong. The reason why they're after me is for a disagreement that they have with me on theology. And he would be under the governor Felix's keep as a prisoner there in Caesarea for two years. And then last week we studied on who Felix was, this governor who is pretty shady as a politician. And he was using P Paul as a political pawn for his own favor with the Jews. And then eventually Felix, because of his crooked ways, was taken out of his authority, out of his position as governor. And in place, Festus was placed as the governor. And so Paul had to go after two years of being in prison again before the governor and explain his testimony, explain why it is that he was there in prison. And he appealed to Caesar. He said, I appealed to Caesar. And as a Roman citizen, when someone was on trial, if they appealed to Caesar, then to Caesar they must go. It was their natural born right as a Roman citizen. But before he was going to go to Caesar, Festus couldn't very well send Paul to Caesar 
on some sort of disagreement that he didn't quite understand. He needed to have a, a pretty good reason of sending this man as a prisoner to Caesar. He can't just say, oh, uh, he's uh, kind of crazy. Deal with him. So in order to find out exactly what was going on with Paul, he had Paul come before him, the governor Festus, and also he brought down Herod Agrippa. Now, Herod Agrippa was a Jew who was very well versed in Jewish religion. He was King Herod Agrippa, and he was also very cricket, as we learned about last week. There was a lot of uh, weird kind of relationships going on amongst him, and he married his sister, and just craziness like this. But with all of this, now Paul is before Agrippa and Festus at last to explain his testimony, to explain why it is that he's being tried by his Jewish brethren. And so this is where we pick up not only to one person's ruling to them. And in this life, we have standards. You see, a, lot, not a law, not only for country, but we have laws of morality in our life that we live today. What is good and what is evil? So my question is, where does this law come from that we claim things are good and things are evil? Why, why do we sense good and evil in certain actions and activities? You see, there are people who believe that morals were developed over time, that morals were created by our own social structure, that morals are not absolute. But in conversations I've had with people, I, I've asked them, when was it? right for us to to kill babies if morals developed over time was there ever a time when it was right to murder was there a time when it was right to commit adultery was there a time when it was right to steal or were these laws absolute but i tell you believers that there is a moral law and if there is a moral law then there must be a creator of this moral law if that creator of this moral law is human, then because it's created, it's flawed by a human being. Because human beings are flawed. 
everything we create is flawed. Everything we, we make is going to perish and pass away on this earth. So if morality was created by humans, then it is flawed. But as our Bible teaches us, since the creator of moral law, according to the Bible, is God, then his law is good because God is good. But we're flawed. We, we all make mistakes. We fall short. So the only hope we have as sinners then is a savior. Someone to take the judgment that we deserve. And a sinner must choose to either accept Christ as Lord and Savior or to deny him. You see, there's a courtroom in the heart of every man and woman. And we decide whether we follow after Jesus or ourselves or idols. And here, Paul is on trial before Festus and Agrippa. Yet in their own hearts and in their own minds, Festus and Agrippa stand trial for their own souls. What will they do with the man called Christ? And then in verse 4, Paul continues, he says, My manner of life from my youth, which was spent from the beginning among my own nation at Jerusalem, all the Jews know. They knew me from the first if they were willing to testify that according to the strictest sect of our religion, I lived a Pharisee. So Paul here is explaining how he was a Pharisee, how he was strict in his practice of religion, but far from the heart of God. And you know that we still do this today, that we are still sometimes falling into that bad habit where we make rules in our walks with God that make us think that we are actually closer to God than others. Sometimes we do works thinking that we can receive the approval of God. And sometimes we even believe that we are saved because of our religious practice. But do you remember what Jesus told the Pharisees? He told the Pharisees, you guys strain at a gnat, yet you swallow a camel. You see, in the, in the time of the Pharisees, they had strict dietary laws where they were not allowed to eat the blood of any animal. And if a Pharisee would be walking down the street and a little gnat would fly into his mouth and he'd realize it, he'd be like, oh, like he swallowed it. He realized, wait a second, that's unkosher. There's blood in that little gnat. So in order so that he wouldn't break that dietary law, he would purge himself and be like, so all the, the gnat could come out. It's disgusting. I'm weak with throw up. And Jesus told the Pharisees, look, you guys strain at a gnat, but you, yet you swallow a camel. Meaning that they were actually forsaking the more important law, which was of the loving God, loving their neighbor. Yet they would focus so in depth on making sure that miracles or healing wasn't performed on the Sabbath. And they were legalistic. And Christians too, we can become legalistic in our own thinking. Thinking that our obedience 
to the law is what saves us, when in fact it's faith in Christ. Now, don't get me wrong, obedience is required as a believer, but obedience is the result of salvation. Salvation is by grace through faith, not of works, lest any man should boast. Now, if I evaluate a, a person's life and see that there's not obedience, I'm not their judge, I, but I, I can make my own human assumption of thinking like, I don't know if that person's really saved, but God's going to be their judge. But obedience is evidence that there is a relationship. And obedience follows that, that loving relationship. And Paul's explaining this to Festus. He's saying, look, I, I used to be legalistic like all the other Jewish brethren, the Pharisees. And then in verse 6, And now I stand and am judged for the hope of the promise made by God to our fathers. To this promise, our 12 tribes, earnestly serving God, night and day, hope to attain for this hope's sake, King Agrippa, I am accused by the Jews. Now, Paul is explaining, look, Festus and Agrippa, this is why they've brought me here. Because of my belief in the resurrection. Now, not all the Jews believed in resurrection. There were these group of Jews known as the Sadducees who didn't believe in resurrection or of spiritual things. But the resurrection was actually taught in the Old Testament. In Psalm 49, verse 15, it says, But God will redeem my soul from the power of the grave, for he shall receive me. David wrote this. Again, Isaiah, one of the prophets, wrote about resurrection. In Isaiah chapter 26, Isaiah writes, We have a strong city. God will appoint salvation for walls and bulwarks. Open the gates that the righteous nation, which keeps the truth, may enter in. You will keep him in perfect peace, whose mind is stayed on you because he trusts in you. Trust in the Lord forever, for in Yah the Lord is everlasting strength. And in Isaiah 26, verse 19, he says, your dead shall live together with my dead body. They shall arise. So the resurrection is not just a New Testament theology. This is something that was prophesied of in the Old Testament as well. Do you guys know what the word testament means? It means promise. It has a lot to do with the word covenant. So... In our Bibles, we have it divided by the Old Testament and the New Testament. The old promise and the new promise. The promise of what? The Old Testament is the promise that the Messiah is going to come. Jesus. And the New Testament is the promise that the Messiah is going to return. Jesus. And when he returns, when we have that day with him, we will have that resurrection. And so this is the, 
theology that they disagreed with. The Jews disagreed with Paul on this. And because of this, they wanted him dead. And then in verse 8, he explains to Agrippa, he says, Why should it be thought incredible by you that God raises the dead? I love this question because I could fit that question into so many aspects of my life. Why should it be incredible that I believe that God can move mightily at my work? Why should it be thought incredible that God can help provide for a house, something for me in the future when I get made? Why should I think it's so incredible when that God can move mightily in a backyard Bible study? You see, God can move mightily. And you can ask that question to yourself of those things that you are anxious over, that things that you are praying over. It's not hard for God to work those things out for good, to get us over that mountain. Sometimes God will remove the mountain in our life, that trial that's just standing in front of us and we're looking at it like there's no way that we can overcome this. Sometimes God just does a miracle and moves it. But other times Jesus comes alongside us with his Red wing backpack is Calty red wing. And he comes next to us. He's like, you got your pack ready? All right, let's go. Well, come on. We're going to go over this together. Most of the times you're like, oh man. But when you're with Christ, there's nothing that can stop you. So Paul is pointing out to Agrippa. Why do you think it's so hard for God to raise the dead? Agrippa, you know, the scriptures in verse nine. Indeed, I myself thought I must do many things contrary to the name of Jesus of Nazareth. This I also did in Jerusalem, and many of the saints I shut up in prison. Having received authority from the chief priests, and they were put to death when they were put to death, I cast my vote against them. And I punished them often in every synagogue, and compelled them to blaspheme. And being exceedingly enraged against them, I per persecuted them even to foreign cities. See, Paul is explaining to Agrippa, look, I was a terrorist to Christians. I would vote against them when they were on trial so that they could be killed. And his goal was to catch and bring them. Now, Paul had this awesome testimony of this transformation that God did in his life. Sometimes we think somebody's so far from, from God, they're like, oh, well, that person will never come to know God. But in fact, many times the ones who are the worst sometimes have the craziest testimonies. And how God, his word comes true and those who are forgiven much love much. So Paul reminds me of how I used to be an enemy of God. You see, before I was saved, when I was uh, in my youth, high school, college, I used to believe in God, but I, I was an enemy of him. I used to think, well, once I have my first kid, then I'll, I'll get serious about God. But until then, I'm going to party and live it up however I want. But God has his ways of his plan of 
okay, Sal, you think you're going to, you know, get with me and be right with me when you have your first kid? Okay, we'll see how that works out for you. Try to live this life on your own, Salvador. And I did. And it was terrible. It was empty. It was void. Sin is fun for a season, but its end is death. And then finally, when I was at my lowest, when God broke me, when I opened up my heart to him and said, God, I just need a new life. He was there. And we all have that testimony. And it doesn't need to be one where, oh, I was so far gone in drugs and on the streets. It doesn't need to be that. Sometimes our testimony is how God has kept us. Sometimes our testimony is we realize that it, salvation is not of works. And Paul is recounting this conversion. He's sharing it. In verse 12, while thus occupied, as I journeyed to Damascus with authority and commission from the chief priests, at midday, O king, along the road, I saw a light from heaven, brighter than the sun, shining around me, and those who journeyed with me. So Paul, he's on his way to Damascus. It's midday, meaning the sun is right at the highest part of the day. And yet there's a light shining down that is so much brighter than the sun at midday. So much brightness that it blinded him. He fell to his knees. And then in verse 14, he continues, And when we all had fallen to the ground, I heard a voice speaking to me and saying in the Hebrew language, Saul, Saul, why are you persecuting me? It is hard for you to kick against the goads. Now this kicking against the goads, you see a farmer, he would have his oxen tilling the ground. His livestock would help him be a farmer and he would have to make this oxen go in a straight line. And in order to do this, this farmer would grab this long pole with a spike at the end of it. And when the oxen would start going off the trail, the farmer would prod this oxen. And that was known as the goad. And then if the oxen tried to kick back at the goad, it would actually only hurt himself as he was doing so. And the oxen would end up getting back in that straight line. And this is what God told Saul. Why is, it's hard for you to kick against the goads, isn't it, Saul? Because Saul was fighting off the conviction of the Holy Spirit in his life. God was trying to get a hold of him and Saul was fighting against it. If you remember, Saul was there when they had Stephen, this Christian believer, who was preaching against the Pharisees and the Pharisees got so angry, they grabbed Stephen and they took him outside of the city to stone him. And Saul was there and he took all the coats of all the Pharisees and he cast his vote against Stephen and he witnessed Stephen, our first, the first martyr. And I think that in Saul's life, that as he witnessed Stephen crying out to God, saying, Father, forgive them. They don't know what they do. Don't charge them. Don't charge this against them. I think Saul was convicted. I think deep down in Saul's life, the goads began to kick on him. And he was fighting against it. 
hearing of Jesus and what he did with his disciples, knowing about the Messiah to come, yet being so invested in his religious structure that he could not break away from it at the time. But the conviction was coming, and that's why God was telling him, it's hard for you to kick against the goads, isn't it, Saul? And then in verse 15, So I said, Who are you, Lord? And he said, I am Jesus, whom you are persecuting. See, notice what Paul was doing to Christians as he persecuted them. Jesus took personally. And then in verse 16, But rise and stand on your feet, for I have appeared to you for this purpose, to make you a minister and a witness, both of the things which you have seen and of the things which I will yet reveal to you. So now Paul, once he, he has that experience, that realization that this is Jesus, Lord and Savior, once he is broken and willing to obey, God tells him his purpose for life, to be a minister, to be a witness. That word for minister, it means servant. See, many times in ministry, we get it twisted in thinking that the minister is the one who the people are supposed to serve, but actually the minister is supposed to serve the people. So when you begin to see ministries that cater towards the minister, maybe a red flag goes up in your mind. And I tell my brothers and sisters here, I say, hey, when you start to see this ministry serving itself rather than serving the people, let me know something's wrong. That's something that needs to be corrected. And that word, that witness that Paul was also called to be, this is a legal witness. And in the Greek, the word for it is martyrs, which is the same Greek word used for martyr. Someone who dies for their faith, someone who is going to proclaim the gospel as a witness. And may we be both of those things. May we learn to serve as Jesus served and washed the feet of his own disciples, even washed the feet of Judas. And then in verse 17, God continues to tell Saul, he says, I will deliver you from the Jewish people as well as from the Gentiles to whom I now send you to open their eyes in order to turn them from darkness to light and from the power of Satan to God, that they may receive forgiveness of sins and an inheritance among those who are sanctified by faith in me. Now, this is what I love about these two verses right here. This is something you want to write down if you're taking notes today. But this is what God has for you this morning as a believer. Number one, God has the ability to open your eyes. This is what Paul was sent to do. Number two, God can turn you from darkness into light. As we see in verse 18, Paul was sent to turn them from darkness to light. Thirdly, God can deliver you from Satan's power. You see, Satan is a formidable enemy to us. But to God, he's just a created being. 
God created the angels. He created Lucifer, who was an angel in heaven. And when Lucifer was filled with pride, God kicked him out of heaven. But God can deliver us from his power. And fourthly, God can forgive you and sanctify you. You see, all these gifts Jesus has done for us by coming to this world. This is, we hear that cliche phrase, that Jesus is the reason for the season. Well, he is. And these are the truths that he brings with him. Do you feel like sometimes you're just lost in our current world? That there's so much lies that are, you, we, we hear the term fake news, right? All the time. And sometimes we're like, ah, oh, maybe it's fake. Maybe it's not. Maybe it's real. And we just are so used to lies that now we can't tell what truth is anymore. And sometimes we get put in that dark place where we just need Jesus to be our light. And there's other times when we just feel attacked spiritually, like Satan and his demons are just coming against us, whether it be through temptation, through outside attacks from other people in our life. Sometimes I see Satan just using Christians against one another. If Satan can't attack us from the outside, sometimes he tries to attack us from within. And that's where he really gets away with a lot of work is our own minds, the battlefield. A, a Christian rubs us the wrong way, our, our, a fellow brother and the Lord rubs us the wrong way and we suddenly become an enemy to them and we're fighting against them. But God can deliver us from this. And what I love too is that he forgives us. His grace is over and abundant. That there's nothing that we can do to make God love us more. God loves us eternally. So when we make mistakes, God still loves us. And when we do good, God loves us the same. We're not earning his love by doing good works. And I'm glad God is not like us humans or like Santa. He's making a list, checking it twice. And if we're naughty, then we're going to get cold. God's not like that at all. And this is lastly in the end of verse 18. All those gifts that we are given as a believer. It says at the end of that, who are sanctified by what? By faith in me. So all of this is done by faith in Christ. All that gift. And it's that simple belief in Jesus and the Messiah. Verse 19. Paul continues, he says, Therefore, King Agrippa, I was not disobedient to the heavenly vision. Ah, see, Paul was a man who knew obedience, who knew discipline. He preached the, to the Jews and to the Gentiles many times, and many times the gospel re was rejected by them. And after they rejected the gospel, Paul didn't just quit. Because Paul found more joy in being obedient to God rather than finding joy in the outcome of God's command. And sometimes, perhaps we don't see people getting saved. We don't see change right away in our life. 
We don't see fruit right away in the ministry. But God is more concerned of our obedience to him. Again, I'll, I'll repeat this. We need to find joy in being obedient to God rather than finding joy in the outcome of God's command. Should we be joyful when there's an effective outcome? Absolutely. But I believe that that joy and obedience will bring motivation, will bring effective outcome, whether we see it or not. Again, in verse 19, he says, Therefore, King Agrippa, I was not disobedient to the heavenly vision. Verse 20, but declared first to those in Damascus and in Jerusalem and throughout all the region of Judea and then to the Gentiles that they should repent, turn to God, and do works befitting repentance. You see, repentance must take place in the life of a believer. The difference between a person who knows God is real and doesn't follow him and a person who both believes and follows God is that striving after holiness. You see, we can't practice sin. We can't be in continual sin. We have to strive for holiness and that brings repentance and understand that we are going to fail. We all sin every day of our lives. We're born sinners. But we keep fighting. I like that phrase, to keep fighting the good fight. Because it reminds me that I am in a fight. That this is spiritual. And we need to be obedient. This week, as I was doing my midweek study on the internet, being completely transparent with you, does. I was alone this week when I was doing it. And a part of me felt like, man, God, like, I don't know if anyone's even going to hear this, God. And it's kind of weird because I'm putting that camera, I'm sending things up by myself and getting my guitar ready. And I just, sometimes that thought comes into my head. And God reminds me, you need to be obedient and joyful in the obedience. Whether I'm going to be ministering to a crowd of a hundred people, or if it's just for me, God wants me to find joy in the obedience of it. And we must find joy in being obedient to God. In verse 21, for these reasons, the Jews seized me in the temple and tried to kill me because of Paul's message of resurrection, his gospel for the Gentiles and the Jews, his message of repentance. That's why they try to kill him. And then in verse 22, therefore, having obtained help from God, to this day I stand, witnessing both to small and great, saying no other things than those which the prophets and Moses said would come, that the Christ would suffer, that he would be the first to rise from the dead and would proclaim light to the Jewish people and to the Gentiles. You see, Christ, he has ascended. He has risen into heaven. And this was promised in the Old Testament scripture. In verse 24, Now as he made 
his defense. Festus said with a loud voice, Paul, you are beside yourself. Much learning is driving you mad. Now, Festus reminds me here of the world. You see, they think that Christians are crazy, which in the world's eyes and in the worldly sense, we are crazy. But I'm on crazy train. And one day God is going to make the what's crazy seem absolutely sane and real. Right now, they, they don't see it. They don't believe it. Just like in the days of Noah, right? They were saying, what do you mean, Noah? You're going to build this big ark for rain that's going to come. They hadn't seen rain yet. And then finally, he builds the ark. And then finally, it starts to rain. And when the ground started to open up and all the, the water started to come from underneath the floor, and they realized, yeah, there's a flood coming because now they could see it. Jesus is going to return. People don't believe it because they've never seen a Messiah return to this earth. But as it was in the days of Noah, so it shall it be in the days when the Son of Man returns. He says in verse 25, but he said, I am not mad, most noble Festus, but speak the words of truth and reason. See, our, our Bible, it's logical. There is reason. There's truth in it. We need to search. We need to find it. In verse 26, For the king before whom I also speak freely knows these things, for I am convinced that none of these things escapes his attention since that this thing was not done in a corner. Now Paul is saying out loud to Agrippa, King Agrippa, saying, look, this Agrippa, he would have heard of the resurrection. He studies the scriptures and he would have known about Jesus coming to this world and he would have known that Jesus was crucified. In verse 27, King Agrippa, do you believe the prophets? I know that you do believe. So he's calling King Agrippa out now. He's saying, look, King Agrippa, I know you studied the Old Testament, which told of the Messiah. And then in verse 28, then Agrippa said to Paul, you almost persuade me to become a Christian. Now, almost, it's not going to get us into heaven. Almost isn't going to get us into that loving peace relationship with God. Almost isn't going to allow the Holy Spirit to lead us in the purpose-filled life which God has planned for us. I am disheartened when anyone would say they almost are persuaded to become a Christian. We need to have that full, complete acceptance of Christ as our Lord and Savior. And then in verse 29, and Paul said, I would to God that not only you, but also all who hear me today might become both almost and altogether such as I am, except for these chains. See, despite Paul's situation, he being that he's in chains, he wished that Agrippa was like him, having the joy, the freedom and peace found in a relationship with Christ. And then in verse 30, when he had said these things, the king stood up 
as well as the governor and Bernice and those who sat with them. And when they had gone aside, they talked among themselves, saying, This man is doing nothing deserving of death or chains. Then Agrippa said to Festus, This man might have been set free if he had not appealed to Caesar. So now, because Paul opened his mouth and said, I appeal to Caesar, he's going to go to Rome. Festus and Paul were looking at, I'm sorry, Festus and Agrippa were looking at Paul as, hmm, this man doesn't seem really guilty of anything concerning Roman law. We probably would have let him go, but because he's appealed to Caesar, to Caesar, he needs to go. But Paul already knew that God had called him to, to preach to those in Rome. So Paul sees now an opportunity to go there. And he's going to get royally escorted. And we're going to see that as we continue within the next two chapters coming up. We'll see what happens to Paul when he finally does go to Rome. Historically speaking, is isn't recorded in the Bible, but Paul eventually is executed on the side of a Roman road. He's beheaded. And he's a man who we see fought the good fight. He finished the race. And I believe that he is a man who will hear those words, as I hope to hear one day, well done, thou good and faithful servant. This morning, we're going to have communion. So I'm going to have Rosie come out. And why don't we all stand? Um, I want to pray and ask that the Holy Spirit would just do a work in our hearts and minds this morning. As we went through, gosh, the year 2020, we're coming to its end, last month of this year. And there's so much for us at times to be anxious about, so much chaos in our world and our personal lives. And maybe we feel like everything's on fire right now. I can't imagine going through this life without Christ. So what communion is this morning is us remembering what Christ did on the cross for us how his body was broken in replacement of ours, how his blood was poured out for us so that we could have a new life. So let's pray, and then I'm going to do a song of worship as we get into this. Heavenly Father, we come before you. We thank you for your love. We thank you for your grace, your mercy. I pray that your Holy Spirit would move mightily, If anyone here this morning just desires to just surrender with the trials, with their selfish ways, with whatever's going on in their heart, their mind, and they feel that God was calling them the way that God was calling Paul to stop running from conviction, but to just submit. If that's you this morning, just raise your hand and I want to Pray a simple prayer for you. Awesome. Heavenly Father, for those who have risen their hand, I pray that the Holy Spirit would 
Father, have your, your love just poured into their hearts, their minds. They would know that you love them so much and have a plan for their life. That you desire obedience, Father. Help them to do so. May we all, Father, this morning accept you as our Lord and Savior. It's in Jesus' name we pray. Amen. I'm going to do a song and my mom's going to pass out the communion. I need you to soften my heart and break me apart. I need you to pierce through the dark and cleanse every part of me. All I Trust what you say that you're good and your love is real. I'm broken inside. I give you my life. I may be weak. Your strong in me my flesh may fail my God you never leave I may be your spirit strong in me my flesh may fail my God you never And when Jesus was there with his disciples, Paul reminded the Corinthians how he broke bread with them. He says in 1 Corinthians 11, For I pass on you what I received from the Lord himself. On the night when he was betrayed, the Lord Jesus took some bread and gave thanks to God for it. Then he broke it in pieces and said, this is my body, which is given for you. Do this in remembrance of me. So let's all take of the bread. And in the same way, he took the cup of wine after supper, saying, this is the cup of the new covenant between God and his people. An agreement confirmed by my blood do this in remembrance of me as often as you drink it. Let's partake of the cup. I may be weak, your spirit's strong in me. 
my flesh may fail My God, you never will I may be weak Your spirit's strong in me My flesh may fail My God, you never will Give me faith To trust what you say that you're good and your love is great. Yeah. I'm broken inside. I give you my love. Awesome. Well, if you guys would like prayer this morning, this afternoon. Go ahead and feel free to come ask for some prayer. We'd love to pray with you. Myself, my father, Lisette, my mom, we'd all be willing to pray with you guys. So, one more song. Be blessed this week. We love you guys. In Jesus' name.